They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. And we are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. Today, we welcome Dr. David Lost to join us. He is the president of the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Philadelphia, and he has recently received a call to serve as senior pastor at Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minnesota. Welcome, David. How are you today? Very well. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to be with you. And with what- you, too, Joe. So I had, uh, David was one of my teachers in seminary, so we have known each other for quite some time. I think that was 2000, I believe, fall of 2000. We had some, uh, it was an experimental conglomerate of classes together, but you were the small group leader I was in, and that was just, it was probably my favorite time of seminary. That was a really good time. It was a, the attempt was to have a group of students who, while they were in different courses, the professors all were, were working together to create a more integrated semester and have some intentional cross-conversation. And it was, uh, I thought it was fun and I thought it was useful. So, of course, we didn't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was even called like the pilot program. I don't think it had anything else attached to it. Are you in the pilot? Yeah, I am. Okay. <laughs> So you could tell us all the, the wild, crazy hair stories from Jeff when he did have hair back in the day, right? <laughs> I did have hair then. Yeah, quite a bit more than now. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> so we are thankful for having you on the podcast today, and there are a number of things that we want to dive into. But first, before we begin, we could talk a little bit about uh, the Super Bowl that was actually yesterday, and two synods that the Super Bowl teams were, were hosted in, had a little competition between each other, raising money for ELCA World Hunger. And there are a number of our listeners who did participate in that program. A number of people in our congregations participated in that program. So we just wanted to first give a big shout out and thank you to all of you who did participate in that. Yeah, we really appreciate your generosity, not just for participating with us in the program, for, but for the real hands-on help that provides to many people uh, throughout our world. So thanks for your generosity, support, and uh, keep it going. There's still lots of needs out in the world, and you can make a difference. So you can still go to ELCA World Hunger and uh, make a, a gift whenever. We'll gladly accept it. So thank you very much. So Dr. Lose, even though Jeff and I are both in New England, I mean, were you rooting for the Patriots last night or the Falcons? <laughs> Um, you're, you know, I didn't think we were going to get into controversial territory. There. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay. You can bleed the fifth. It's okay. I, I feel like four Super Bowls is enough for anybody. <laughs> and I'm still having a hard time getting over to flight gate. I just, something in me just really reacts to the seeking unfair advantages. So I, I will confess, I was kind of hoping for Atlanta to bring home a title for a lot of the game, I thought that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, yeah, everybody seemed to to think that you know they they had it in them, but uh, but the Patriots prevailed, of course. So we'll we'll see how many more uh, championships Brady and Belichick can get together. Uh, just a remarkable relationship. The controversy is no uh, 
foreign concept to life of faith and uh, especially life in the church. And I know a lot of us who are preachers are working through how to be not just engaging to our, our congregations, but also trying to move in a positive direction with so much division that there is. I thought maybe we could, the three of us could just kind of chat a little bit about that and, and think out loud a little bit in ways that can be helpful to try to guide people into the light of Jesus as we think about how we're faithful uh, with our neighbors. So any opening thoughts for anyone? Well, I think just naming it as a conversation is really valuable and actually I think really wise in terms of in terms of how we even get at what we're talking about um, because I think I just think one of the real challenges in our larger culture and in our church culture is we have a very hard time knowing what to do with uh, people who disagree with us on things we feel strongly about. And I think our culture has kind of veered in a more and more immature direction, kind of facilitated by uh, how easy it is to both live in a world that reinforces your own opinion by choosing your news sources and feeds and all of the rest, and kind of unilateral communication strikes. You know, it's... yeah. A Facebook post, a tweet, while it may engender a response, is so different than inviting a conversation. And I think that's part of the challenge, apart from recognizing, you know, you may feel one way, a colleague may feel another, a parishioner may feel another. How do you create space that is safe enough, respectful enough to even talk with each other? And uh, I just think that's sort of one of the unnamed challenges. I think what we think the challenge is, how do we persuade people to think the way we think? Even if we kind of know that's not our job, sometimes we feel so strongly about things uh, that it's hard to believe that's not our job because it seems so clear to us. And yet there are these other people that we know and regard and respect and think are smart and faithful, and they totally disagree. And so I think, I just think that's a real challenge. And and if we could imagine creating com- congregational space for those conversations, that might actually be a different, not the only kind of witness, but a different and important kind of witness to the larger culture that really struggles with that. I think creating that space is the difficulty when it is, and, and, and figuring out how to create it so it is not a battle, but a conversation. And whenever people start to think about some of these justice issues, if you don't agree with it, it definitely goes into a direction of, oh, you're just saying that because you don't like Donald Trump, or you know, you're just saying that because you want to build the wall, or whatever it is. Any thoughts about how to create that atmosphere of conversation rather than convincing someone else of your opinion? Everything I want to say, I, I feel very strongly about, and yet at the same time, I have some reservations, or I want to ask questions about it at the same time. For instance, I think uh, justice is an incredibly important element of the Christian faith and Christian life, and it's what we're called to work for. And at the same time, I think once we name something a justice issue, it sets up this dichotomy. If you disagree with me, you're clearly not on the side of justice. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And I think that gets really problematic really quickly, just the way we name it. This is a matter of justice. Or if you're, you know, if you have a church council meeting and a member says, look, pastor, I've prayed about this. It's sort of like, oh, I guess we can't talk about it then because none of the rest of us pray, or you must have the direct line to God. (laughs) You know, it frames it in a certain way. 
So how do we talk about issues that we feel are about justice without naming them as justice issues in a way that immediately sets up the psychotomy for me, just, against me, not just. So that's just kind of an example. I think we unhelpfully oppose prophetic preaching and pastoral preaching. Boy, I think a lot of prophetic preaching happens in communities where it happens more easily, more regularly in communities that are fairly homogeneous around whatever particular issue they're being prophetic about. I think um, that's a lot harder to do because again, once you name your stance as prophetic, well, who wants to be unprophetic? Right, right, or, right, exactly. You know, and so then we use pastoral as an alternative, but I think what we're really, you know, on the one hand, we want to name, how do you care for your whole community? How do you create space for everyone there? But it feels like the weaker player of the two, mm-hmm. you know, that somehow it's a cop-out. So I just, boy, I think this is just kind of, uh, indicative of the complexity of these issues, that even the way we talk about it, naming things as justice or prophetic or pastoral, all of those feel like they're loaded with assumptions or frameworks that make it difficult for people to have a genuine conversation. I really like the framing concept because I've been thinking just for myself what that means. I mean, I think Joe and my context are similar where we have a number of people really on both sides of the political divide and a spectrum, of course, as well. So how do you engage people? As something I've, I've been thinking about in the last month, really, has been, I wonder if we, I think as mainline Protestants, we're really good at kind of big picture issues, but we neglect the personal ones a little bit. And I, I've kind of sw- switched my thinking a little bit. So like when the March on Washington happened, or the women's marches uh, really throughout the country, rather than talk about that as a concept, I I tried framing it in the in the line of, well, how am I going to engage that? And that was the conversation I was having. <laughs> it, like the struggle of how to engage that, not the issue itself. You know, with the refugee thing too, just what does that look like? Uh, you know, there's more protests going on and people opposed to it or, or, or for the wall or whatever side of people are on. And at the same time thinking, okay, I have, I have friends that have a history of coming into the United States um, within my own lifetime. So what's what was their experience? You know, then there's a personal story. It's it's less uh, I'm on this side of the issue and you're not. But I don't know. That could blow up in my face. We'll we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I have wondered. Um, I'll go back to like the last big controversy our church was wrestling with, and yeah. we were approaching or right around the 2009 votes on how the church views homosexuality and uh, marriage between two committed persons who are gay and ordination, all those cluster of activities uh, or issues rather, I began to have some invitations to, to help congregations work through this or think through this biblically. And they were almost always places that had people who felt very strongly on both sides. And I usually would begin with a very short Bible study on passages that had absolutely nothing to do with human sexuality, Mm. but rather it was comparing Galatians 2 and Acts 15, which were are two very different takes on the kind of Council of Jerusalem and the controversy of whether Gentiles had to be circumcised. You know, let's let's go somewhere, let's go to a issue that was heavily controversy controversial, but hasn't been for almost two thousand years. Right, right. Right. Partly to say, like, look, we have been, as a church, wrestling with, arguing about, sometimes fighting over 
things from the very beginning, which should give us some level of, a sh of reassurance that it's because being a Christian, of being a follower of Jesus, and taking your faith and your life in the world seriously is complicated stuff sometimes, and sometimes really hard. And the kind of fundamental question I would pose uh, to these congregations w before getting into any of the theological issues or biblical issues around the issue at hand was, can you look at someone else in your congregation who's been a friend and a colleague and you've respected for a long time, when you discover that person feels very differently than you, can you still look at them and see them as a good Christian? Mm. And if you can't, we've got some other issues we need to talk about before we get to this. And if you can, how does that frame the way you're going to interact with each other? So I, I sort of feel like we're at one of those moments again. And, and But even again, so here's the ambivalence. Even as I talk about that and making space and, you know, there's a whole other part of me that's like, okay, am I just a coward <laughs> and don't want to take a side because I'm a middle child and I like to keep everyone happy? <laughs> you know? Like there's right. all those conflicting. Uh, so even in the approach to this is not totally clear. So anyway, again, some ambivalent thoughts because we don't have enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's very helpful in first framing it in a way like, you know, controversy in the church is not something that's new. This is something that's been going on forever. And then also framing it in a way of thinking it about how in the end we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are called to be in relationship with one another. And part of that relationship is knowing how to have a conversation about difficult things and still remain in relationship with one another and not fight about it. But it, it, is, it seems as though it's getting harder and harder now to really see it as something that people can ha be civil about. It seems that people are getting more frustrated and angry easier than it, than it has before. Maybe that's just how I'm feeling right now, but I don't know if that's totally true for everyone or not, but it just, I, I, I kind of feel that way, so. Yeah, and I always like to be a, a person that brings other people together, and I feel like you have to say something. Yeah. yeah. Or you're not being faithful in some regard. Whatever it is you say, you got to at least address it, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's difficult. I was thinking of the we the hymn we sang on Sunday that has the line uh, about the prophets who wrote with eager or reluctant pen, <laughs> and I think, oh yeah, that uh, feels that feels like today for sure. Yeah, I think I have sometimes assumed that my role as a pastor, and I think I've been not in the parish actively as a leader, parish leader, pastor for a long time. But that's always been a big part of my sense of identity as a as a teacher in the church on a theological seminary, and so I, I identify with that role pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. And I've sort of always felt that my role was to articulate values. First, I've always said that all my parishes look. I don't think faith and politics can be separated, because I think the God, our God, is God of all, Lord of all of these things. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not only our faith lives God cares about, because that's kind of vacuous. It's our relationships, and it's the way we use money, and it's the way we treat the creation, and the way we interact with each other in politics. And so I think faith and politics belong together. Um, at the same time, I've known people, we probably all have, who are well to the left of us, well to the right of us, who we respect and care about and think are good, faithful people. And so it's difficult for me to just discard those opinions. Actually, it's kind of impossible 
because it feels so disrespectful to people that I really care about and respect. Right. Uh, I also think it's really important to create room for people to be in this community. So if I come down really strongly on an issue, because I feel very strongly about that issue, um, have I just made it harder for that for someone who disagrees with me to have an experience of being welcome in the Christian community and experiencing God in and through that Christian community? Um, so I, I sort of have those as kind of operating values, and then I sort of always think in my mind, yeah, but clear, surely there's a there, there will be a line. If if we cross that line, I'll know, and then I will take a stand no matter what. You know, and the example we all think of is like slavery when <laughs> when, you, right, when right. you cross or you know extreme prejudice or real prejudice, whatever it is, but one that's defined really differently, like what that line is or what it should be. And two, I think back to when the Christian church was struggling with slavery in the middle of the 19th century. You know, I think of this one, and his name is escaping me now, but this major theologian at Princeton who was from the North, abhorred slavery, but had a really hard time arguing or figuring out how scripture justified the abolitionist pose. And so because of his commitments to scripture, reading scripture more literally, uh, Charles Hodge, that's who it was, ended up kind of defending a view he found abhorrent, you know, and and so I just think that kind of, like, it's easy to look back and say, oh, that was so clear, you know, slavery, women's ordination, like when we're on this side of the argument, but right. we're, when we're in the middle of it, it, it gets a lot harder. And that's, again, where I think, okay, am I just the middle child who's afraid to mix things up or stir things up because I want to be, you know, all of those things go alongside my sense of values of what am I trying to do in terms of creating Christian community. I've seen a lot of comments being made about that type of subject of, you know, you think this was bad, well, what are you going to, how are you going to act now? You know, like you said, it was easy to kind of look back and say, oh, that's an obvious, obvious uh, stance that I would take, but what are we doing now when we, when we do see the things happening in our world that we, we definitely think need to be changed or, or made better, so. Changing directions a little bit, you know, your current position at uh, the Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia. Lots of changes happening at the, the seminary in Philadelphia and Gettysburg. And uh, as of July 1st, you are taking a new call, and, and this new Union Seminary is being formed. Can you just share a little bit about that and how that process is coming together now and things that you think uh, folks might want to hear about? Yeah, I'd be glad to. So uh, United Lutheran Seminary will launch on uh, July 1st of 2017. All, all has, it seems to be going well, has been going well, lots of challenges, but lots of good hard work from a lot of folks. It really, we're, we live at this kind of interesting and challenged time in that in the ELCA, at least right now, there are 600 congregations that want a pastor and can afford a pastor but can't get a pastor because there aren't enough of them. Like this tremendous shortage. And that number is yeah. going to grow to a thousand empty pulpits in the next three or four years. Wow. Um, even, even recognizing that congregations, this is an ELCA research study done that took into account that congregations may be shrinking or going to half time or combining or closing, even recognizing that the shortage is going to grow to more than a thousand congregations that want a pastor and, and, and can afford one, but can't find one. So yeah. on the one hand, there's like never been a better time to be a seminary. We've never needed seminaries more. 
at the same time, seminaries over the last decade have been so tremendously challenged, particularly financially, because of, of a tremendous drop, you know, 40, 50% almost, well, probably 40% drop in the number of students going to seminary over the last decade uh, and decreased support from larger church and, and synods who have, I, sh- I want to be really clear, have who have worked, many of them worked mightily diligently to to fund as much as they feel they can fund. And so I'm very, very appreciative. I don't want that to sound accusatory at all. But at the same time, the resources have shrunk. A lot of schools are trying to figure out how to be viable. And so a couple of our schools have embedded themselves in universities. And Philadelphia and Gettysburg approached this in a different way. I think the question of our coming together was initially raised by financial and enrollment concerns But Michael Cooper White and I both agreed really early on, if this was primarily about kind of institutional survival, we weren't sure it was worth all the effort. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So we took it as an opportunity to just try and think differently about how we educate leaders, both in terms of what kind of leaders, like what what's going on in the culture and what kind of what does that speak to the kind of congregations we need? And if we have a different sense of congregations you know, the shorthand is I think the, the culture has sort of disenfranchised the faith. It's, it's not hostile to our faith. There are Christians that live in hostile environments. We'll never know their challenges. But it's pretty indifferent as opposed to, you know, for three centuries, the culture kind of pretty clearly encouraged people to go to church. It had a vested interest in congregations flourishing, and that's just not true. So I think our congregations really can't afford to think of themselves as spiritual destinations that people already primed by the culture are seeking, but instead really have to equip those who are there to make sense of their lives with the faith, to to actively, like, how do you think and act and speak like a Christian? How do you take your faith and have it help you make decisions about your life and family and relationships and politics and, you know, all the rest? And if we can do that, I think we'll find our people come to church with a greater sense of clarity about their purpose, why they're there, and probably more equipped to share that with other people. But that's a shift in the way we think about congregations. And that, I think, calls for a different kind of leader, where we value the leader not simply for, primarily for how good he or she is at preaching, teaching, praying, but kind of what we begin to value is how good are our pastors at equipping their congregations to do these things, interpreting the faith and reading scripture and praying for each other and uh, moving less from a performative and more of a coaching or formative model. That all then demands a different kind of seminary experience, both in terms of curriculum, um, what are the goals of our curriculum, what are we trying to equip, but also pedagogy. If my dominant mode is lecture or even lecture and small group discussion, I haven't really taught or I haven't given a model or an example to our students of how to share authority um, and how to take shared responsibility for what's going to happen in this class translated eventually to the parish. I just think it's really hard to give what you haven't been given. So anyway, we, we thought, okay, here's an opportunity to think about the financial viability issue but also to really think about, instead of combine, let's take the best of Gettysburg and the best of Philly and put it together, kind of try to say, no, let's back up and start fresh and work with our our colleagues, uh, our alumni who we've been, you know, listening to and trying to 
have, have them guide us because so much of, I think, where the church is figuring things out is in the parish context um, and be guided by that. And let's bring that into conversation with our faculties and let's think about a different way and more uh, to train a more responsive leader to the actual culture. And then the third piece we really thought we had an opportunity to do was, can we take this education and make it more accessible? We've been working with, about making it available online and intensives and a, a number of our schools have been working at that, but also more affordable. And so we really, the economic efficiency wasn't simply to survive, it allows us to think differently about financial aid. And so the, the two schools, Philly and Gettysburg this year and going forward United are offering, for instance, uh, full tuition scholarships to all full-time ELCA candidates and matching scholarships for all of our students, whether ELCA or not, part-time or full-time, matching the the money they may bring from a congregation or their church body up to 100%. So really trying to make it possible for all of our students to go through tuition-free. Tuition is not the full cost of seminary. In fact, it's only about half, but it's something. And so that's kind of what got us energized is can we take this, the, the challenging circumstances we're in and use them as an occasion to rethink how we shape leaders, you know, across the board. One of my favorite mantras as a, as a leader has always been never let a good crisis go to waste <laughs> right? Um, hmm. because it, the crisis creates the atmosphere in which you can do things that you've kind of known you should do for a while, but didn't have the energy or the motivation or crisis comes along. It's like, Whoa, we got to act. Hey, we do. Here's an idea. Let's try this. So Anyway, that's kind of a long answer, but that's what we've been working at. It's uh, it's had its ups and downs, mostly ups. We've had tremendous support from our boards, our alumni, donors, and supporters. Uh, it's been very hard, as you can imagine, on our faculty and staff because it's talking about jobs and and identity and the relationship between a school and its faculty. That's I, what I really feel good about is the different groups when we, even when we disagreed, we entered into those conversations with good faith and with care for the schools that we are part of in the church and went through some pretty hard times, some lower moments in those relationships, but are at a pretty good place. And I think kind of oriented toward the future and what we hope to be able to offer. So you can probably tell I've talked about this a few times. A couple times, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really like that idea of the, the coaching model and giving folks in our congregations the tools in order to talk about our faith. And I've heard you say that a number of times in blog posts and, and other podcasts and that sort of thing. And I think that is just critical for our, our people, learning how to talk about their faith in, in a real personal way and to be able to share that with, with, with others. I think that's just a, a great direction to go in. And, you know, I'd be excited to see how that how that plays out. Obviously, I agree that it's really critical. It's also really hard, yeah, um, yep. because a lot of our folks that's not that they're not thinking. I gotta, I gotta go to church so I can get better at sharing my faith with people. <laughs> <You> <laughs> right, know, right. We haven't set up the institution that way or the expectations that way, and really, we've set up a model in which. But you know, pastor, isn't that your job? You know, isn't right. that why we call you? And so it's a major, major kind of uh, shift in our imagination. And what I find that the point, the turning point for conversations to be able to have a conversation is when on the one hand, you recognize the way in which the the tradition that we've embodied, the more performative kind of ministry and life in the church um, 
has served us really well. I mean, it really has shaped the faith of generations. But then to ask the question about who's who's not here that you would like to see? Is there anyone that you are friends with or family member maybe? And then I just find the kind of floodgates open and people have these stories about their children or grandchildren or nephew or friend or, uh, and it's like, okay, that's why we're talking about this because there are people that we love who are not here and that kind of orienting around why we're having these conversations is so vital and more productive than, you know, we got to change. It's a, I think it is the challenge and it really of this generation and it really is a challenge. Yeah, and I think it's not only in evangelism but also in pastoral care. Jeff and I have talked a number of times about pastoral care and and how, you know, that falls on on the pastor and most of the time, very appropriately, but I also have heard from from folks in the congregation, hey, it's great, Pastor, that you're here to see me, but also it'd be nice if some other people from the church reached out even with a phone call to check in. I mean, they know that I'm not in church. They know that I'm not, you know, doing well. It'd be nice to hear. So giving folks those tools in order to care for one another, not yeah. just on a Sunday morning, but, you know, during the week as well. Yeah, and I really resonate with the the generational piece. I know I was I was in one parish where we kept trying to shift the culture, but the question always was, so this will get kids back to Sunday school, right? Yeah, and you know, and it's like, no, that we're we're in a different world now, and I feel like now the conversations are you. There's a lot of lament around kind of a missing generation, and it's kind of almost a middle generation. There are kind of those who are retired. And then there seem to be some families with kids, but it's that middle chunk of folks that never quite connected. So people have kind of, I don't know if they've really come to grips with it, but I think they're starting to understand that, okay, w- what we did in the past worked for us, but it might not have worked in, a, in the next generation. And we really do have to rethink some things if we're going to connect with the kids that we do have here and their families. And, so, and I think that's helpful because it's it, you're, there's a new place to enter in that I don't think maybe that space was even there a few years ago. Yeah, and I think that distinction you just named, Jeff, is really important. It's not that uh, what we did was wrong. <laughs> exactly, right. It's, it was actually really powerful and effective, but the generation or the group for whom that works best is shrinking. And the group for whom it doesn't seem to connect with is growing. And so it's more about being responsive than something better or right or wrong. It's, And I think there's some urgency to this conversation because of what you just named, that kind of middle generation the number of times I've had pastors say to me, you know, my kids are great kids. I'm really proud of them. They're doing wonderful things in the world. And I know that what they're doing is shaped by the fact that they grew up in the church, but they don't seem to find church that meaningful or relevant to them or helpful. And so we have this kind of generation of people who were shaped by the church, even if they don't keep going, they at least have the memory of church. But it won't be long before there we have a generation who has no memory of church. You right. know, it's just kind of that whole tradition, reservoir legacy of experiences is just kind of evaporating. So I do think it's really urgent for us to be having these kinds of conversations and moving them beyond, you know, what will get young families here or what will grow the Sunday school. Or it's not that I'm against those things. It's just when you make that a goal, I think you unintentionally objectify the people that you're trying to engage with instead of asking, uh, so maybe Sunday school's not working for this generation. What what would be a way of forming them in their faith? Uh, which is a very different question. 
Yeah, I think so. We get preoccupied with either the methodology or the packaging and not the content. I mean, the content's good. I mean, we, we know that Jesus is the light of the world. That That's good. I'll, I'll, I'll keep that as pretty central, but, uh, how we shine that maybe, uh, maybe it gets trapped behind some bushel baskets in ways that aren't helpful and we might not even be aware that we're doing it. So as you know, these conversations happen and as you know, you are making your transition, can you talk a little bit about how that's kind of impacting you personally, you know, um, and your family as think about changing from one chapter in your life to another? When I took the call at the Philadelphia Seminary, uh, uh, the term for a president is usually five years, sometimes six years, and they're usually renewable term kind of thing. This one was three, and uh, and we talked about that, the, the call committee, search committee, and the board and I ahead of time. And part of the reason was they were in a challenged enough situation that they wondered, you know, where will we be in three years? Will we be at a place where we can call a president and all of that. And they wanted to be very realistic and upfront and honest about that, which I really respected. They also wanted to create a sense or allow that uh, different timeline to create a, a sense of urgency in the community because I don't think everyone was aware or kind of didn't want to deal with the challenges or uh, entirely. And it was allow, allowed a, a, us to have a talking point. I think a lot, there was a lot of hope that that would be extended, that, you know, I would fix everything and it'd be fine and we'd just move on. <laughs> and, um, we both experienced that before too, yeah. Right, right. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. um, and it became clear really early on that if we were kind of wildly successful in the turnaround plans, uh, we would survive. And I just remember driving, having this kind of little epiphany uh, along the lines of the Church of Jesus Christ needs more than survival from its institutions. And that launched this conversation with Michael Cooper White that led to the conversations with our boards and faculty and, you know, the work we're doing fairly early on in that work, both Michael and I in conversation realized that we had some pretty hard decisions to make down the road and some pretty, there, there would be ups and downs and there'd be some uh, uh, strong emotions and that, it might be, as I've watched other interim ministries, I don't know that I entered into this thinking it was an interim, but I think it, that's in a lot of ways what it was, interim leadership, that there sometimes is an advantage to the leaders who guide that significant and turbulent change to take some of those emotions and feelings and baggage with them and create space for a new leader to come in uh, and start fresh. So fairly early on, I thought, you know, I'll probably be <laughs> wrapping up about the time this new school launches. And there was a lot of very supportive, benevolent pressure or, or encouragement to consider continuing. But I felt pretty strongly what would serve the institution best is creating that kind of space. And because I don't want this to sound overly wise or noble, <laughs> I also looked ahead and thought, I may be really ready for something different <laughs> right, this, right, right. when yeah. this is done, too, because I kind of love change leadership, but I also know it is just consuming. It takes you know, a toll on you, definitely. So I kind of imagined I'd be returning to uh, higher ed in some way or another and really was thinking about teaching a lot of things I haven't been able to write the last couple of years that I'd love to have the time to write and somewhat attracted by the idea of having summers free again <laughs> and, you know, yep. other yeah. perks of the academic life. And uh, out of the blue came an invitation to be in conversation with 
with one of our really strong, healthy congregations, Mount Olivet in Minneapolis. And they were uh, incredibly gracious in kind of giving me some time to think this through because it was a very different vocational direction than I had imagined. And were super open to kind of the all the questions I brought about that parish and what's going on and their own vision for the future and what their challenges are and what I could bring and whether this is a good match and just a series of really helpful conversations that were very, very grace-filled. I'm really grateful to that call committee and, and the congregation that helped me imagine this as a really viable call it is the best word for it. It's not simply an opportunity. It's not a change of pace. It's just like it, it felt more and more like a call. Uh, and, it, and it felt good to be returning to parish ministry because that's what I've focused on in my own teaching, teaching preaching and research on congregational vibrancy. And it felt kind of fitting to, to you know, see if all this stuff I've been talking about works. <laughs> 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 or to kind of take my, I, I mean, what I've hoped I've conveyed in writing in different places is my tremendous regard for pastoral ministry. And it also felt kind of fitting and good just to, to take that a step further and, and just do it, jump into it again. So so we're, as a family, excited about this this call and uh, and move, and I am um, excited and sometimes still a little surprised that it all worked out in terms of their willingness to wait, because I really felt very strongly I needed to, to be at Philadelphia until the work of forming United Lutheran was done. So their patience uh, and willingness to wait and uh, so still a little surprised, occasionally daunted. It's been a while since I've been in the parish and I feel like I have a lot to learn. Uh, but the overwhelming sense is really of being blessed uh, to be the prospect of being joined with this congregation and faith community. I hope it'll be fun for you. I mean, it'll be good to be on the front lines again with people that are out in the world and it'll be great. Yeah, and it's again. I just I I feel like I have a ton to ton to learn about actually being a parish leader, not just talking about being parish leaders. <laughs> yeah, and not just teaching would be parish leaders or parish leaders, but doing it and a ton to learn about this congregation that does a number of things really differently than a lot of their peers. And I think uh, some folks admire it, some folks kind of critique it. Uh, I just am kind of in awe of of the vision that has animated this place and feel like I have a lot to learn. Uh, and fortunately, that's sometimes what's daunting is that sense like, whoa, I got a lot to learn. But I love learning. So that's, you know, that's an okay thing upside, for you. Yeah. On the upside, right. Keep me busy. <laughs> <laughs> now, will you still have opportunities to do some teaching in addition or, or, or will you pretty much be grounded there at Mount Olivet? Well, the call committee was very uh, supportive of the role that I've had a chance to play in terms of being a teacher in the church at large, not simply in a, a professional academic role, and, and very supportive of that continuing. I've said kind of two things. I want to really uh, be the pastor of this church and for the church to know that and count on that. And so I have been hopefully graciously <laughs> turning down a whole lot of, of opportunities that I normally would take uh, because I really want to be there and get to know this community and, and be present. But at the same time, recognizing some opportunities are, are I feel, are important to do on the, on the larger church's behalf and also 
hopefully can strengthen the ministry of the church itself, the congregation itself. And some are easier to do. Some when it's a day and you're flying in one evening and out the next, that that's easy. If I'm teaching a week at a school or somewhere, somewhere else, that's a lot, that's a different, you know, different proposition. So I think I'm hoping to kind of be grounded and focus on this parish and, and get to know them and have them get to know me and, and work on that. But I think there'll be opportunities to continue to, to teach. And I hope, I think a little more time to write uh, also, which I've really missed. And again, that won't be my primary calling, but I think, again, the congregation has been supportive of the way that writing can strengthen not just the outside church, but the community itself. So, so we'll see. Well, that'll be something yeah, that's great. to be figuring out, but it's something to look forward to. Are you able to share a little bit about some of the interests that you have in, in writing or topics that you're, you've been thinking about? Oh yeah. You know, I, I'm I always have way more ideas than I'll ever be able to put pen to paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, and I just am so kind of frustrated with myself because Okay, I've had a lot of fun writing a couple of books trying to open up different topics, Bible, Christian faith, cross, and it's a series Oxford Fortress publishes called Making Sense, Making Sense series, Making Sense Scripture, yeah. Making Sense Cross. I had one, the fourth one, it was originally going to be a quartet, a fourth one started uh, about a third of the way in Making Sense of the Christian Life. So prayer, stewardship, vocation, ethics that I was kind of looking forward to and, and had gotten started and it was just totally shelved. And then like a year or so ago, I thought, okay, this is the perfect year to do a making sense of Martin Luther, <laughs> you yeah, know, like, yeah. and really kind of a catechetical, but conversational approach to the theology that for me helps me stay in this world as a Christian. I just cannot say how much Luther's theology has shaped the way I look at the world and make sense of the world and want to offer that to others. But man, I have not been able to find the time <laughs> to write and it's killing me because this year is slipping away. <laughs> very quickly. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, not that we won't, there won't be value in talking about Luther, but if there's a, a teachable moment, this is it. And uh, right. so... So those are some, I'd like to write a little bit more about leadership, about what I have learned and keep learning about how do you lead change? Because I think increasingly all of our contexts in ministry in the church are require some, uh, some they are all in one way or another about change leadership, uh, which doesn't mean everything's going to look different or changed radically, but that because the culture in which we are has changed so significantly, you just need to be aware of that and how do you navigate that? So some things on that. I was two-thirds the way through a manuscript on thinking about preaching a little differently or in a more participatory way, and, and that got shelved. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had written a couple of years ago, I'd started a book with a, a young man who had grown up as a Lutheran. I didn't know this when we first met, but grown up as a Lutheran in southern Minnesota and had become an atheist and had wanted to have a dialogue and we had kind of written back and forth and gotten to a point where with a publisher where the, where the publisher wanted to go was very different than we wanted to go. And so we just kind of drew that to a close. But I've I've wanted to revisit that the, my part of that material and kind of shape it into sort of almost letters to I don't want to just I mean, the, I thought the working title kind of Dear Atheist, but that that feels uh, it, I don't know. I don't want to group atheists the way I don't want to be grouped as Christian, you know, in a, in the way some folks sort of read all kinds of things into that or, right, but right. sort of, uh, how do we engage folks who 
are kind of on the side of this or maybe grew up in the church in our way or, or don't think much of the church or have real questions and, and just try and uh, imagine that kind of dialogue. So those are a few of the things. Uh, can you tell I haven't written for a while and can't wait? <laughs> yeah, it's good. You sound very excited. That's great. <laughs> Any words of encouragement you can give those out preaching each week or leading congregations or working through change or thinking about their own lives and the divisions in them as we get back to the task at hand of living faith in the world? Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, well, thanks for the invitation to be in this conversation with you both. And thanks for, for the work you're doing to, to offer resources and create space for conversation. I don't think we can do that enough. So I really appreciate that. I am, I've become in the last few months kind of a huge fan of Hamilton. Uh, haven't gotten yes. tickets yet. <laughs> don't know when I will but have the soundtrack and just, you know, the, I just think the genius of the vehicle and the music and the topic. And, and, and it reminds me too, as we're thinking about kind of some of the debates and the division, that is kind of core of what it is to be a part of the American experiment. And I think it's a helpful reminder. I mean, you think we're, we go at it sometimes ungraciously, the different sides, oh my word. <laughs> Back in the day. (laughs) Look at Hamilton and Jefferson and the way they tear each other apart, which I'm not advocating or (laughs) lifting up as a model. But I think that 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 dimension of our lives in the culture and in the church, so back to the Galatians 2, Acts 15, I think we forget that that is a part of what is to be human. And, uh, and, and if we remember that and think that that's not the work to be avoided, but as part of the work, maybe that will allow us to engage it more uh, patiently and more graciously and more hopefully, um, because I think we overlook that. So I'll stick to the LCA for a moment. We are, we are not very diverse when it comes to ethnic and racial diversity, and we've really struggled and in a lot of ways failed to live into our hope of being a more inclusive church. We are still very diverse though, generationally. I know we're tilted more toward the latter third uh, of life, but we still have multiple generations present in every congregation, sometimes five or six generations at the same time, which I don't think has ever happened in the life of the church before. Yeah. And we are very diverse politically and ideologically and we sometimes, pastoral leaders, feel that as that's the problem. You know, how do you say anything without upsetting someone? But it's also a tremendous gift. I can't think of, you know, the two things that happen at churches that I don't think happens anywhere else is, one, we sing out loud, you yeah. know, together. Yeah. And there's something powerful about shared song. We don't even do that at the baseball park anymore, maybe the seventh inning stretch. But we always bring professionals in to sing the national anthem. And there's something really unifying about song that the civil rights movement knew and other elements of the church has known. And so that's one. And, uh, but the other is that we have this diversity of, of opinions and views. And if we can shape a place where you can say, here are some Christian values we agree on, welcoming the stranger, comforting those who are vulnerable, caring for those who are at risk, acknowledging there may be very different ways to get at that. And can we have a respectful conversation where we where we place our Christ-centered values at the center and then have at it with the best way to get there? Again, I think that'd be a tremendous gift. So I know that work is really, really hard. 
uh, and I guess I want to say um, it, it is the work in front of us, and it is good work, and I'm so grateful that so many of our pastors are struggling with it because it really, really matters. Well, thank you for sharing thank that. Thank you for the encouragement. You know, it's really great to hear your words of wisdom for us and for, and, and I, I have this positive feeling about the church, you know, with, with faithful leaders like yourself really kind of putting out their uh, different thoughts and, and different ways that we can be church together. It's, it's fantastic. So I really, again, appreciate your time that you spent with us and your words of wisdom. I would turn it around and say really what I find helpful or hopeful is uh, a generation coming up behind me, and I'll just own that. <laughs> you all are a lot younger than I am, um, that you're willing and interested in being in this. That's really a tremendous source of hope for me. So thanks. Mm, thank you. And thanks, too, for uh, sticking with us. Uh, for those who like things that happen behind the scenes, I think, uh, how long have we been in conversation? Months, it seems, <laughs> trying to, to line up dates that worked, and then something came up, but uh, you kept coming back to us and said, yeah, I still want to be on. So thank you very much for making time. Absolutely. We really appreciate it. I do. And uh, just for those of you out there, Dr. Lose does have a, a blog that he regularly posts at. I don't know how he finds time to do it, but davidlose.net. You can find him there and um, has very great uh, inspiration for uh, preachers each and every week. And um, any other ways that, that folks can get a hold of you? You know, that's probably it. Uh, I used to write a lot more there, and I've kind of slimmed it down to just the one post a week. But for time's sake and sanity's sake, I just haven't gotten into social media. So that's that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. We, we are uh, in social media as a Two Bald Pastors, so you can find us on our website, twobaldpastors.com, or on Facebook, uh, Two Bald Pastors. So once again, I am Joe McGarry. And I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a blessed week. Bye now. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. Sounds like you might have been preaching in those readings recently. I think it might have come up. It might have come up recently. You know, it's still epiphany. Light of the world is good. There we go. <laughs> right, right. You know, I'll confess, the first thing I thought you were saying was, uh, like, Lutherans who use the paleo diet. <laughs> oh! <laughs> well, if we There's can find one of those. Of those yeah, if we can find one of those, that would be great. <laughs>